So um, we're going to speak on the Bhagavatam. I'm just uh, making sure everything's set up here. I'm recording on Ustream also for people who are on Ustream. And um, so I will begin with the verse then. I, What's that? Okay. Is that all right? Uh, it's, so the way that we do this is that uh, we can responsibly. Oh, okay. Okay. On our end. So I'll read the Bhagavatam verse, is that right? Yes, three, five, three. Yeah, I'm there. Okay, here we go. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Janasya Krishnat Vimukasya Daivat Adharma Shilasya Sudukitasya Anugrahaya Iha Charanti Nunam Bhutani Bhavyani Janardanasya Janasya Krishna Vimukasya Daivat Adharma Shilasya Sudukitasya Anugrahayeha Charantinunam Bhutani Bhavyani Janardanasya so, uh, this is Srimad Bhagavatam 353 and Prabhupada's translation, Janasya of the common man, Krishnat, from the Supreme Lord Krishna Vimukasya, of the one who has turned his face against the Lord. Daivat, by the influence of external energy. Adharma Shilasya, of one who is engaged in irreligion. Sudukitasya, of one who is always unhappy. Anugrahaya, due to being compassionate towards them. Iha, in this world. Charanti, wander, nunam, certainly. Bhutani, persons. Bhavyani, great philanthropic souls. Uh, Janardanasya, of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Prabhupada's translation. Could you, could you hold on just for a moment? I'm going to mute everyone so that... Uh... You know, you won't have any interference with noises. If you oh. just hold on for a moment. Sure. Muted. Okay. Not quite ready yet. Unmuted. All right. So everyone is muted except for you. I'll mute myself. Oh, great. 
It's what I always wanted to have the uh, be the only person that can talk. So, just joking. So Prabhupada's translation there is, um, "Oh my Lord, great philanthropic souls travel on the earth on behalf of the supreme personality of Godhead to show compassion to the fallen souls who are averse to the sense of subordination to the Lord." Prabhupada's purport to be obedient to the wishes of the Supreme Lord is the natural position of every living entity. But due only to past misdeeds, a living being becomes averse to the sense of subordination to the Lord and suffers all the miseries of material existence. No one has anything to do but to render devotional service to the Supreme Lord Sri Krishna. Therefore, any activity other than transcendental loving service to the Lord is more or less a rebellious action against the supreme will. All fruitive activity, empirical philosophy, and mysticism are more or less against the sense of subordination to the Lord, and any living entity engaged in such rebellious activity is more or less condemned by the laws of material nature which work under the subordination of the Lord. Great unalloyed devotees of the Lord are compassionate towards the fallen, and therefore they travel all over the world with the mission of bringing souls back to Godhead, back to home. Such pure devotees of the Lord carry the message of Godhead in order to deliver the fallen souls, and therefore the common man who is bewildered by the influence of the external energy of the Lord should avail himself of their association, Prabhupada Kijai. So, again, the verse Janasya Krishnat Vimukasya Daivat Adharma Shilasya Sudukitasya Anugrahayeha Charanti Nunam Bhutani Bhavyani Janardanasya. So, I will go over those words briefly. Uh, Janasya, of people of people, jana, uh, Latin gente or gentile. So of people who are vimuka, janasya of Krishna vimukasya daiva. Muka means face. And so in Sanskrit, the word muka or face is often used to mean, in, in an obvious application of the word, to face someone in the sense of to be interested or to pay attention to someone or to take someone seriously. And V, I'm in Italy now, so V is Italian via, which means away. And so V muka literally means turning one's face away from someone, not uh, taking them seriously, not paying them attention, not respecting them. Uh, that's the idea of V muka. And so here <clears throat> it's explicit uh, to whom or whom one is ignoring because it's a Janasya Krishnat Vimukasya. So we're talking about people who turn their face away from Krishna. Uh, do not take Krishna seriously. Uh, are not interested in Krishna. Or even don't respect Krishna. And it said Daivat, which Prabhupada translates by the influence of external energy. The word Daiva, of course, comes from the Sanskrit word Deva. Deva means God, and the power of God is Daiva, 
also translated as uh, destiny or providence in the sense that uh, the power, power of God or, or uh, destiny. So Daivat, because of Daiva, because of Daiva, well, of course, Daivat and Krishnat can also mean Krishna who has the power of God, but here Prabhupada translates to Daivat by, by the influence of the Lord's energy. They have turned their face away from Krishna and turning one's face away from Krishna, one becomes Adharma Shilasya. Shila in Sanskrit means behavior and uh, also in the sense of one's typical behavior. And so Adharma Shilasya means those whose behavior is typically Adharma uh, against justice, against the will of God, uh, against the objective, reasonable, cosmic law which governs the world. Adharma Shilasya, and because they are acting in that way, they are sudukitasya, very unhappy. Uh, for example, I remember that uh, I saw in the news years ago, they had a special uh, team, the uh, New York City police, have a special team which would recognize and identify criminals just by walking down the street. And so they were interviewing these people and they said that the way you recognize criminals is they're nervous. And it's one of the, obviously not every nervous person is a criminal, but most, almost every criminal is nervous. And so by, uh, because if you're breaking the law, if you're in danger, uh, then you're going to be nervous. And so uh, that's the idea here. Adharma shilasya sudukitasya. If one is breaking the laws of God, not following the laws which guarantee cosmic justice, then one will be in anxiety, one will be unhappy. Because by acting inappropriately, by not following reasonable principles of justice and good behavior, uh, principles that guarantee the peaceful interaction of all people, by doing this, uh, one is actually disturbing the world, and that disturbance, of course, comes back to one, and so one becomes disturbed. So, Anugrahaya. So now we come to the good guys. We've talked about the bad guys. Now we're going to come to the good guys. And they are Bhutani beings, or people, creatures, who are Bhavyani, Bhavya. Uh, it's very interesting in Sanskrit, I'll go a little bit into it. Bhavya comes from the Sanskrit word to be, bhu. And so um, bhava can mean existence. Bhava can mean material existence, uh, as in uh, the first Shikshastaka prayer of Lord Chaitanya, bhava maha davagni nirvapanam. So bhava can mean uh, the material world. It, it means that because the verb bhu in Sanskrit means to be, but also it means to become, to come to be. And therefore, um, since the spiritual world always exists, but the material world comes to exist and then goes out of existence, therefore it's called bhava, literally the becoming. With the idea that anything that comes to be will also go out of existence. And so, but there's another sense of bhava, of becoming, which means that, uh, so to speak, you become someone. In other words, we all have desires, we all have wishes. And so the idea here of bhava is that one 
comes to be in the sense of coming to prosper, that one's existence advances. And so in that sense of the word bhava, uh, we have the word bhavya, which means, uh, it's a noun from bhava, which means that which brings desirable things into existence. So now you know the lowdown on that word. So here talking about Bhutani beings who are Bhavyani, who bring about prosperity, who bring about in, in the highest sense of the word, doesn't just mean they fill up your bank account. Bhutani Bhavyani beings who bring about uh, a desirable or prospering state of being. So, and they are Janardhanasya, they belong to Janardana, they belong to Krishna. So clearly here, this Bhagavatam verse is talking about those people who are auspicious in the literal sense of the word. To be auspicious means to bring about good, to bring good to other people or to oneself. And these are Krishna's own people, Bhutani, Bhavyani, Janardhanasya. So interestingly, those people, Anugrahaya, in order for mercy, for out of compassion, or in order to promote or to be kind. Uh, Iha, in this world, Charanti, they travel. That's very interesting because you could, why not say that those who are compassionate, Krishna's own people who bring about the good for other people, they, they just sit in one place and everybody comes to them. But it's said here that that's not the case. Actually, they travel. Why? Well, Prabhupada once said to me in his garden, I was sitting with Prabhupada in his garden, and he said to me that for uh, salesmen and preachers, traveling is good. And so, uh, you understand that, right? Yes. You have to travel to make money. So the idea here is that um, it seems that there are two reasons to travel. One reason is because most people in the world don't live where you do. And therefore, if you actually want to reach a lot of people, you have to, you have to travel. For example, now I'm in Italy, and this has been a wonderful experience for me. And hopefully it's not too bad for the people, other for everyone else. But so by traveling to this country or that country, you just meet a lot more people. And, and uh, another thing is that there's an old saying in English, and I'm sure in every other language, in its own way, that familiarity breeds contempt. And so if you stay too long in one place, people, they take you for granted. And, and they, um, and so even Prabhupada, uh, for example, he came to New York and he stayed for a while and then he traveled. So, so it also, in a sense, traveling for someone who is, who is trying to act as, or who is acting as a spiritual leader, traveling also keeps or can keep relationships uh, fresh and uh, people, because the preacher also may take people for granted. If you see the same people every day, it may become almost awkward or like, well, I don't want to preach to that person, you know, it's my neighbor, I can't preach to my neighbor. And, and, and so the preacher himself or herself may take people for granted and people may take the preacher for granted. So, so the idea of traveling is, uh, Traveling is something which uh, can be good for a, a teacher and also good for the people in so many ways. So another point I wanted to make here, that, so that's the basic idea, that uh, people in this world have turned away from Krishna. And uh, 
if you don't take, how should I put it? If you look at history, if you look at human history, what you find is that moral systems, uh, systems of morality come from uh, some type of metaphysical worldview. Because th th there are two ways in which people try to justify open a window? There are two ways in which people try to justify morality. For example, that you must do this or you cannot do that or you should do this or shouldn't do that. One way is by appeal to some type of divine authority. And another, and then you have a secular attempt, which is by some form of social contract theory. Namely that, uh, look, uh, it's for everyone's good that we all agree to do this. Like when you sign a contract, you know, it's supposed to be a win-win, as they say. Like, okay, sign this contract. It's good for me. It's good for you. Everybody wins here. It's a deal. You know, it's a, it's a good deal for everyone. And so basically, for those who, let us say, people who, who do not accept God, or any type of spiritual reality, which in itself has the metaphysical power to justify moral principles, then they'll have some kind of argument that it's good for everybody. If you agree to the social contract, it's better for you because if you steal, then other people will steal and someone may steal from you. Of course, social contract theory is very limited for the simple reason that it's often false in the sense that, and you find this going back uh, actually almost two and a half thousand years in a famous conversation between Socrates and Callicles in a dialogue written by Plato. Because someone may say that, well, I think I have enough power to steal from other people and get away with it. And I think I can do this. And, uh, you know, I'm a gambling man. I, I, I'm willing to take that risk. So it's very different to say to someone, it's very different to say to someone that this is just wrong. Like, no, you know, you should not harm innocent people because it's wrong. And it's different than saying, well, if you do that, then uh, maybe, maybe someone else will do it to you, or maybe it's not in your self-interest. Because the problem with social contract theory of morality is that you're not really saying that things are wrong. It's, it's not really bad to kill children. It's not really bad to rape innocent women. I mean, that's not really bad. It's just that ultimately by some uh, often unconvincing theory of history, if you do that, uh, it'll somehow come back to you. And so uh, what we find is that virtually every moral system, and all of us should be grateful for moral systems because it's like, the fact that, for example, we're in Italy right now, and we're in Asiago, beautiful town in the mountains. For those of you who are watching this program, sorry you're not here. It's really a nice place. So the fact that we can walk down the street and it's, it's, it's very likely that, you know, some, no one's going to jump on us or, you know, or shoot us or try to steal our money is, uh, that's really nice. I, I'm really happy about that. And so, of course, Asiago is also a very Catholic city in its own way. And so, and there's actually a connection between those two things. So, 
Um, so the idea here that if someone does not accept, and here it says those who have turned away from Krishna. As we know, Krishna appears in many forms. God, there's one God, fortunately, otherwise I mean, the world would be very confusing. But there, there's one God and um, someone may not know the name Krishna, they, but they may actually understand there's some type of supreme divine being to whom I, uh, or divine being that I have to take very seriously. And so if someone simply rejects the very idea of divine power, if someone rejects the idea that there's some kind of God, then for that person, ultimately, there is no absolute moral authority. There's nothing I have to do, and there's nothing that I must not do. It's just that, you know, I'll just calculate. In every situation, I will calculate whether I think I can do this or not, whether it's good for me or not. And if everyone is just calculating like that, obviously we have anarchy and, and, and everyone's going to suffer a lot. So therefore, these two things are connected. Uh, turning away from God and uh, not taking seriously moral principles and uh, being unhappy yourself because it comes back to you. So, um, another point I wanted to make about this verse is Prabhupada's purport, actually. It's, it's um, I think this purport, when I read it the first time a few days ago, because I knew I was going to speak on it, this, uh, I was really amazed at Prabhupada's uh, unique purity and boldness because uh, he really, how should, let me put it this way. In order to live in civilized society, we have to be civilized and, and, and you have to have good manners and you can't offend and insult everyone you meet. At the same time, there are some ultimate truths which are very heavy. And there's a tension between, on the one hand, trying to be a lady or a gentleman and not give people the impression that we are religious fanatics, which we really aren't, at least most of us. So we don't want people to think that we are religious fanatics because we're not. At the same time, there are some truths, there are some facts in the universe which are so strong that if we say them, people may think that is like, you know, that's too heavy. And so if you look at what Prabhupada is saying here, it's a very heavy statement, although philosophically, it makes perfect sense. It's just that most, it's just most people don't speak that way. And so what Prabhupada is saying here is that really, well, he says it in the first, he says to be obedient to the wishes of the Supreme Lord is the natural position of every living being, every living entity. So, are we still? Yeah, I guess we're still there with the Y still connected. So, yeah, we're still there. So, um, this idea that every living thing 
every living thing has an original natural position in nature. It's, um, that makes perfect sense because if that were not the case, if we did not have an original position, then uh, we really would hardly exist at all because you really wouldn't be anything. Whatever you are now, you may not be tomorrow. And whatever you are tomorrow, you may not be the next day. And you certainly weren't three days ago. And so that means that the whole sense of even existing would be an illusion. Of course, but it's not. For example, Descartes, the, the great 17th century French philosopher Descartes, who is famous, he, uh, he engaged in this very famous project, which you have to think back, this is the, these are the 1600s. In the 17th century, what he did was actually quite revolutionary because in the 17th century in France, uh, everyone was supposed to believe basically whatever the church told you. Although that was breaking down because in the 1600s, uh, you have the new science. You know, the science, Sir Francis Bacon is developing the scientific method that we know today, you know, empiricism. And so, every, I mean, things are changing. It's sort of a transition between the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment. And so, but still, Descartes said in the 1600s, he said, uh, what if I doubt everything that I think I know? Everything. What if I doubt everything? Everything that I think I know. What if I say, I doubt it, I may not, it may not be true. So he wrote this book called The Meditations, in which he said, is there, he began by saying, is there anything that I simply cannot doubt? It's impossible logically to doubt. And so he came up with, yeah, he came up with something. He said, cogito, which in Latin means I'm thinking, I'm conscious, ergo, therefore, sum, sono, therefore I exist. So he couldn't doubt that he existed. And then of course, after that, he, um, he was able to restore to his own satisfaction a lot of other facts, ultimately God, ultimately said that it follows logically there's a God. But still, so the undeniable, the self-evident truth, self-evident truth means something that proves itself. It's so obvious, it's so clear, it proves itself, and therefore it is inappropriate and unnecessary uh, to demand that you prove it by something else. Like you, some other fact outside of this fact somehow proves it. And so Descartes declared that it is self-evidently true. It's so obvious that it doesn't require proof because anything else, if you, if you think about it, the fact that you exist as an individual person, the fact that you exist as an individual person Anything else you tried to bring in to prove it would be less obvious than the fact that you're an individual person. And so by trying to prove this fact by some extrinsic evidence, you would actually be going down in terms of the strength of evidence because the self-evident fact that you exist is more true and more clearly true than any other evidence you could bring. And so, anyway, little philosophy won't hurt you. So. If we agree with Descartes that the most obvious fact available to us, the most obvious and irrefutable fact of our life 
is that we exist as individual persons. Then, if we don't have an original nature, if we don't have an original nature, that would somehow not be true. And so the idea of saying, I don't have an ultimate nature would be to deny what is most obviously true, namely that I do exist and I exist in a certain way. I'm conscious and, uh, and I have a sense of my individual identity. And so if that's true, that we actually exist as individual persons, then it must be true we have a nature. If it turns out, as it will, I think reasonably, that our nature is that we are part of God and that therefore it is our natural duty to serve God, then it follows logically that any other activity is more or less a deviation from our real nature. And so that deviation is not a morally neutral deviation. In other words, you could say that I'm driving on a road and I take the wrong road. So it's not morally good or bad that I took the wrong road because it didn't cause any harm to anyone. Let's say no one was injured by my taking the wrong road. It just, I just eventually figured out I took the wrong road and then came back and it didn't cause any harm to anyone. It was my day off, you know, no innocent people died. No one was infected with a terrible disease. It did not uh, throw innocent people into poverty. Nothing happened. I just took the wrong road. But when we don't serve God or when we deny God, it's not merely a, it's not a morally neutral mistake. For the simple reason that uh, if you understand that God or Krishna is the source of everything, then to ignore the will of God is a problem for several, several reasons. Number one, because we are part of God, as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita. Therefore, if I ignore God, I'm actually ignoring myself. And so if I ignore myself by ignoring God, because I'm part of God, whatever I'm doing, uh, it's probably gonna end up causing a mess somewhere. And there's the issue of gratitude. Krishna describes in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna describes in the Bhagavad Gita what he calls a, a, a wheel or a cycle, which in Sanskrit is chakra. <clears throat> and he says that evram pravartitam chakram, a wheel has been made to turn. That's the, as you all know, causative past passive participle of the verb pravrit. Anyway, that's, that's grammar. So evam pravartitam chakram, that a wheel has been made to turn. And nanu literally one who does not keep the wheel turning. Agayur has basically wasted their life. Their life has become an offense against nature, really. And Indriyaramo, they've uh, this person has literally just engaged in sense gratification, Indriyaramo, and Mogung part of lives in vain. So what is that cycle? that has been made to turn. It's actually a cosmic cycle. And if you don't keep this wheel, this cycle turning, then your life has been wasted and your life is an offense. It's the cycle of receiving and offering back. For example, if you go here in this beautiful little town of Asiago into a negocio, a store, and you take something, like your store, say Milano, and someone takes something and just walks out, 
the fact is, if you own a store, it's a lot of trouble to run a store. I mean, you have to, it's a lot of trouble. I mean, you need lawyers and accountants, and you've got to buy things and sell things. You have to deal with banks. It's a lot of trouble. And so if someone just walks into your store and takes something and doesn't pay, they have broken this cosmic cycle. It's interesting. It's not just the law of the city you're in. It's not just the state, the country. It's actually they've broken the law of the universe. And this is very interesting because what Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita is that human laws are actually simply local manifestations of cosmic laws. And this law that a person has broken by taking something out of your store is the law of reciprocation. That when you receive something from someone, you have to offer something back. And if you think about it, this principle of reciprocation is actually the basis of every human system of justice, it's the basis of every healthy, successful relationship. It's just the way the world works. It literally makes the world go round. And so, and it also works at a cosmic level because we're receiving gifts from God or the representatives of God. And just like you can't steal something from a store, you can't steal something from the universe. It's the same idea. As above, so below. And so that's, that's the part of the Gita where Krishna is talking about the fact that we have to reciprocate, we have to give back. Uh, in the Gita, when you receive gifts from Krishna's representatives and you don't offer back, then a person becomes simply a thief. Stay naiva, simply a thief. Ladro. So, um, and this of course gets back to the point of a dharma. You turn away from God, you turn away from the authority of God, and uh, you engage in unlawful activities and become a disturbance to your to others and therefore to yourself. Because that's the whole point, for example, of the uh, la policia, the police. That if you disturb, that people who disturb society are disturbed. They are disturbed. They're put, you know, they, they're very disturbed because you go to jail. Unless, of course, you're a politician and there's special facilities. But let's say normal people, people who are not politicians, if they steal, uh, they go to jail. So, and, and this punishment for crime is not, it's not simply that, that there's an angry God. No, it's actually ultimately for the good of the uh, the criminal. Because the system of karma is just like a big cosmic mirror that whatever we do, God just holds a mirror up to you. This is what you did. This is what it looks like. It's like that old Bob Dylan song, How Does It Feel? So, in other words, it's cosmic empathy training. Just like you can take a course in empathy, so Krishna has his own course in empathy, which is called the law of karma. So, um, so Prabhupada does not shy away. Prabhupada just tells it like it is and says that even, I mean, because this would, this would actually shock most people, the idea that everyone that's just working a job, 
taking care of their family, making money, trying to buy a nice house, trying to uh, get a nice car, go on vacation, maybe even go to heaven when you die, you know, like next life insurance. That someone who's doing that, a karmi, or Prabhupada says, a um, empirical philosophy, just philosophers, scientists, or even mystics, that all these, you know, highly respectable people are actually, Prabhupada says, more or less against the sense of subordination to the Lord. And they're doing something seriously wrong. They're actually doing something seriously wrong. I mean, Prabhupada can say this, first of all, because he actually knows it's true. He's, he's not just repeating some religious doctrine he heard. He actually knows it. He actually sees it uh, because he sees Krishna. And, and because he's fearless and because he's um, pure and therefore not envious of anyone. So it, people don't get outraged when he says it. But what's interesting here is that, uh, what's interesting here is that you can't really understand the truth of what Prabhupada is saying, or you can't, I mean, you can understand what the words mean, but to really appreciate it, you have to know Krishna. Because if you don't really know, if you don't, if you haven't actually realized that there's a supreme being who is absolutely pure and who is absolutely worthy of, who deserves your obedience and your love, actually deserves it. If you don't really see that, and if you don't see to what extent it's true, because someone may have a general idea, yeah, there's a God, sure, we should, you know, be pious, follow God. But if one's realization of God is not so powerful, then your sense of the impropriety, the incorrectness of not serving God will be uh, proportionately not so strong. So, you know, how, how powerfully do you see? How convinced are you that it's really wrong to do anything except serve God? That depends on how powerfully you've actually understood God. Because if you see it, if you actually see that God or Krishna, whatever name you use, that God is everywhere, that God is the source of everything, that we are actually part of God. If you really see it very powerfully, then you will have a very strong sense that to ignore this fact, to ignore this fact, which is infinitely more important than any other fact, and which in fact is the source of all other facts. If you actually see Krishna, if you actually see God or, or, or deeply understand Krishna or God, then it will strike you very strongly that to ignore this, to deny it, to go against it, to act as if we are alone in the universe without God is seriously, deeply mistaken. But again, one can only become convinced of that if you actually understand God, which Prabhupada does. So that's another thing that struck me is, is that Prabhupada, because of his purity, because of his realization, 
he can say things and get away with them that uh, are hard for other people, other preachers to say. Finally, the last point I wanted to make is the, the need for us to um, take this verse very seriously, very seriously. Um, Prabhupada, in all the time I spent with him, and I was fortunate to spend a significant amount of time with him, and uh, probably what struck me most about Prabhupada, about his association and uh, being personally trained by Prabhupada as a GBC and ISKCON in the Western world, and uh, there are almost, uh, there are not many of us left, people who are trained by Prabhupada in the Western world to be senior leaders. In fact, uh, among the active preachers, I actually don't know of anyone else. So I'm not claiming that I know something everyone else doesn't know. I'm simply saying, though, that um, one thing which I saw very clearly in Prabhupada, his purity impressed me very much. I mean, how could it not impress you? You could just see that this person is pure. But another thing, I'd say the, the other thing that impressed me most about Prabhupada was his constant sense of urgency about spreading this movement. <laughs> Prabhupada was not passionate, he was not like frantic or running around, but he was just, he was always thinking about spreading this movement and he was always taking it extremely seriously. And so if you look at Prabhupada's life, what you'll find in Prabhupada's life is something which I think maybe we need a little more of now in the Hare Krishna movement, is that when he tried a particular strategy and it didn't work or didn't work very well, he would very quickly try something else. Unlike Prabhupada, we seem to have the ability to do the same thing for decades, for years, perhaps a century. I mean, God knows how long. And even if it's not working so well, uh, we just keep doing it. That's not Prabhupada, by the way. Prabhupada never changed the basic principles. It's not that he said, okay, people don't like the word Krishna, so I'll call God something else. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about changing our philosophy. We don't change our philosophy. We don't change the spiritual practice we gave, that Prabhupada gave us. And we don't change uh, the institution Prabhupada gave us, actually. But in terms of superficial things, and some people I think, uh, anyway, I think it's important we know the difference, what's the surface and what is actually Krishna consciousness. If you look at Prabhupada's life, he went to Jansi, didn't work, went to Delhi, tried giving out his little back to Godheads, wasn't getting anywhere, he switched to books. He came to America, he went to Butler, Butler wasn't happening. He went to New York. New York wasn't happening. Thought of going back to India. Then New York started happening. He was going to Dr. Mishra. He thought he could work with Dr. Mishra. That didn't work. He left Dr. Mishra. And so, and so if you look at Prabhupada, he's constantly adjusting things, trying this, trying that, and constantly has a sense. Here's another Prabhupada story, which I will never forget. And that is when Prabhupada would come back to America, and of course, this is just as true for any other Western country. When Prabhupada would come back to America and we would meet him at the airport, and several times I did this, 
and there was a press conference. I think one time in Honolulu, one time in Los Angeles, and there was a press conference, and Prabhupada's greatest pride, his greatest pride is, he would say to the reporters, he would point to us, his disciples, and he would say to the reporters, these are American boys and girls. I did not import them from India. That was Prabhupada's pride. Anyway, I think the conclusion is obvious. Prabhupada, when, I, when Prabhupada mercifully came to my South American zone in 1975, he was in Caracas and he got a letter from the GBC of Southern Europe. It was Bhagavan Das at the time. And in that letter, Bhagavan had just rented a big chateau castle in Geneva. And he sent Prabhupada a big picture. There was no internet then. He sent Prabhupada a big picture of this chateau with about maybe 30 or 40 devotees in front of the building. And Prabhupada answered him because I was there. Prabhupada wrote back and said, that's very nice, but are these local devotees or have you imported them from somewhere? Did you bring them from somewhere else? So this idea that number one, we have to, some, when Prabhupada went to Africa, he went to Africa and he saw that the devotees were mostly preaching to the Hindu community. And it was Prabhupada, not the local devotees. It was Prabhupada that said, you have to attract and persuade you to preach to the local people, the Africans in Nairobi. That was Prabhupada who said that. So whether it's America or, or Europe or Africa, always the same message. We want local people and Prabhupada wanted the movement to grow. Prabhupada took the growth of the movement, the fact the movement was growing as evidence that it was bona fide, that it was potent. Prabhupada never was satisfied to see the movement not growing powerfully and just say, oh well, whatever, someday, you know, we have prophecies on our side. That's not Prabhupada. So that sense of urgency that we have to find the way, again, preserving the three things that Prabhupada really said we couldn't change, our philosophy, our practice, and our institutional framework. Those are the three things. Other things, details, Prabhupada says very clearly, the nectar of devotion, chapter six, there are fundamental principles and there are details. Details can be changed. And so if we think all these details are fundamental principles, we have not understood Vaishnava philosophy. So if someone says that a particular behavior, you know, some external presentation is a basic principle, there's a very simple way to prove that. Find it in, in Rupa Goswami's list of basic principles. So, for example, as one sannyasi or some sannyasis say that you can't really practice bhakti yoga unless you dress a certain way, fine. Find it in the list. Find it in Rupa Goswami's list of basic principles. If it's not in the list, it's not a basic principle because we're supposed to be Rupanugas. So, and of course, Prabhupada sent Tamal Krishna Goswami to China and Tamal had to do, I mean, incredible things. He had to sit at literally at a table and smile while everyone around him was eating dog meat. 
he, you know, he cut off his Sika. He, he did so many things and Prabhupada was so pleased with him. And now we have thousands and thousands of Chinese devotees. So I'm not saying the way to spread the movement is sit down with dog eaters. I'm just saying that in every place we have to find the way. And so that's the mercy. When you really love someone, you'll do anything to help them. When parents love their children, they'll do anything to save their children. So do we as Vaishnavas, and this is not a rhetorical question, it's a real question. Do we, who claim to be followers of Prabhupada, do we have that level of compassion? How unselfish are we willing to be? What are we willing to do in order to reach people, in order to spread this movement? Because that's the real Prabhupada. If we want to keep Prabhupada in the center, let's keep the real Prabhupada in the center. The Prabhupada who was completely dedicated to making this movement work, to spreading this movement, and that would not stop trying things until he found a way to make this movement grow. That's the Prabhupada we need to keep in the center. Because obviously Prabhupada is a perfect example of what this verse is talking about. The, uh, what Prabhupada calls philanthropic souls. Philanthropic, of course, being his translation of bhavya. Philanthropic souls who travel the earth on behalf of Krishna to show compassion of the fallen souls. So, uh, thank you all very much for your attention. Uh, now I think, uh, questions? Yeah, you Actually, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, Roman is here, I'm echoing. Can you... Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where that's coming from. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to try. Boy, great class as always. Thank you so much. Thank you. Whenever we go into the subject of big part, it, it really interests me because it seems like an inescapable paradigm that's so logical that he spoke with regard to solipsism. Uh, I think, therefore, I am, and that's when you lock into that, it's it's hard to go anywhere. It, it seems impossible. I missed the bridge that you were trying to explain how he took a leap to somehow come to the conclusion that there may be a God. Oh, I didn't really cover that. You'd have to uh, read his book. It's not a long book. And actually, I should probably reread it, so next time I mention him, I can do that too. But um, sorry, I'm a little rusty on Descartes in terms of his proof for God. I've always, where I've always gone with it is, well, even, even if, in fact, the only thing that really exists is within our own purview, it, it, is in our own thinking or in our own world. Krishna is still the best game going anyway, whether he exists or doesn't exist, whether he's real or isn't real. We will certainly find the most pleasure, the most enjoyment, the most satisfaction playing that game real or not. Yeah, that sounds more like Pascal, another French philosopher. Um, yeah, but of course, yeah, I mean, it's true. It's true. I'd actually like to address another question which was sent in by Parangshreya Das in Germany. And it's a very intelligent question. What is the opposite between a dogma and an axiomatic self-evident truth? Very intelligent question. 
danke für die Frage. So, it's a very good question. Actually, it's making me think, which is not really very nice of him. But okay, so if we think about what a dogma is, actually, uh, let's look up the word dogma. The word dogma in English means, in the Google dictionary, which is one of the worst dictionaries online, but still, it says a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. That means you can't refute it. So, a dogma, I mean, I mean, let's, I mean, obviously, it's a very good question. Obviously, anyone could simply say that it's self-evidently true that the world was created by the great pumpkin that hovers above the moon. And uh, I see it, I know it, and uh, it's real. And if you don't see it, you're just in a type of pumpkin illusion. I mean, something absurd like that. And so anyone can claim that. Someone could claim that this is a self-evident truth. But there's a, how should I put it? There is a, um, there are certain rules of the game here. It's a, it's a free country, let's say, in Italy or America, so anyone can claim that something is self-evident truth, but who's going to believe it? Who's actually going to believe it? And ultimately, you as an individual, let's say you as an individual soul, if you hear someone claiming this is a self-evident truth, you will investigate, you may investigate it. If it has enough merit, if it interests you, you may investigate it, and then you'll make your decision. Then you'll make your decision. So, um, so public opinion, we, we, we are so used to, how should I put it? We are so used to surveys, like public opinion surveys, and 37% of the people think this, and 59% of the people think that. And if over 50% think that, then it's true, or it's true for them. But, for example, there's a, probably a, a, a strong majority of people in the world who think it's okay to kill animals and eat them. And yet, when you understand that that's not all right, when you actually realize that it's not all right to commit cruelty and, and, and brutality against innocent feeling creatures, or even that God is present in these creatures, it is an understanding which it's uh, you and other people who have this knowledge share. Because I mean, to give an example, almost everyone in the world believes there's really a world. Like we're actually in a real world. We're not just, let's say, uh, trapped in the laboratory of some evil genius that makes us believe we're in a world. And so you could say, well, what if? You could say, what if anything? And so there's actually an infinite number of statements you could make or questions you could ask, beginning with the words, what if? But ultimately in the real world, uh, we do not take all these theories or all these claims uh, as being equal. Ultimately what happens in the real world is that people reject claims that don't seem to have any serious possibility of being true. Take, for example, justice systems all around the world. Rather than beginning to talk about God, let's take justice systems. Obviously, laws are different all around the world. Any country you go to, the laws are somewhat different. And yet, 
people who actually study international legal systems find that pretty much there is a, an agreement, there is a universal understanding about the basic principles of justice. For example, taxes in, in France, they had this crazy law where if you make over a million euros a year, you got to pay, how much was it? Like 90% of your income, it was some ridiculous number. So in socialist countries, they may charge more tax, in you know very capitalist countries less tax but there's a general principle which is that if you take advantage of the resources the facilities offered by society you have to give something back so someone may be a capitalist someone may be a socialist but underlying that there is an almost universal agreement on the most fundamental principles and then the fact, let, let's say belief in the idea that if you earn money, if you have created wealth, that you have a right to enjoy it to some extent. To what extent, like what percentage of your wealth do you have a right to enjoy? What percentage should you give to the government to be, well, stolen actually, but theoretically distributed among people that need it? So there, there are different theories, but the idea that you have to give something back and the idea that you have a right to enjoy some percentage of the wealth you have created are basically universal ideas in civilized societies. And even if you look at the worst dictatorships or the most dysfunctional corrupt governments, you'll find that even very dysfunctional corrupt governments have uh, good constitutions. They don't follow them. I mean, no one takes it seriously, but they actually have a good constitution. So in the same way, if you look at concepts of God, if you look at world religions, what you'll find is, well, first of all, in terms of legal systems, why is it that in civilized countries or even in uncivilized countries, at least theoretically in their constitutions, why is it that we find very practically universal agreement on basic principles of justice, even though those principles may be applied differently according to other beliefs? Or why is it that if we look at world religions, we find almost universal agreement on the nature of a supreme divine being. Namely, that divine being should be somehow omniscient, should know everything, omnipotent, should have great power or all power, and should be uh, benevolent in the literal from Latin, benevolente. I mean, literally wishing the good, desiring the good, like the English word volition, you know, will or desire, wishing the good for others. Or so this benevolence, this benevolence is wishing the good and knowing everything and, and having great powers and the possibility of a relationship with that being. These are ideas which are found virtually throughout world religions. And so why? Because people have intuition. If you, first of all, understand that as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita, that we are all part of God and that God in the heart is giving knowledge to everyone. And if you understand that knowledge comes from goodness. So all around the world, throughout history, there have been some good people. And therefore, it's not that all knowledge or all wisdom has come from India, because India is not the only place in the world where there were good people. And according to Bhagavad Gita, anywhere in the world that anyone was just a good person, that person will have knowledge. 
And that's why we find throughout the world that people have had the same kind of wisdom in terms of treating other people with respect, justice, compassion, reverence for a divine reality. These are principles you find throughout the world wherever there were good people. And in every part of the world, there were some good people. So therefore, getting back to this question, what is the difference, what is the difference between a dogma and a true axiomatic, self-evident truth? Um, ultimately, grammatically, grammatically, there may be no difference. Because the statement that it's a self-evident truth that the great pumpkin created the universe, or the statement there's actually a supreme God, grammatically, they're the same. You know, there's a noun, there's a verb, there's an object of the verb. So there's a grammatical equality, and there's even a legal equality, because in free societies, you can say anything, which doesn't, you know, it's not hate speech or doesn't cause, you know, significant harm to other people and so on. But otherwise, grammatically and legally, there's no difference. But what actually uh, leads people to make their decisions that this is true or this is not true is their deep intuition because God is in their heart. So for example, take the claim that uh, Jesus is the only way, that there's no other way to God but Jesus. What we find is that this claim was accepted by most people only in history in societies where there was very extreme violent coercion. In other words, we actually don't find that significant numbers of people for significant periods of time believed this if there was no violent coercion. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is not divine. I personally believe Jesus is divine. And there are many good people who accept Jesus as divine. But my point is specifically this, people, significant numbers of people for significant periods of time have not believed that Jesus is the only way, which first of all, is something Jesus himself never taught. But anyway, so again, uh, if you look at free societies where there is not heavy coercion of one form or another, many people respect and love Jesus and also understand that there are other paths. In fact, in America, which is kind of known for having all these like fanatical born again type people, the latest a serious study, uh, which is there's a, a foundation called the Pew Foundation, and they're probably the main group that does like surveys of attitudes about religion in America. And what they found is that two thirds, two thirds of American Christians, whether Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, Two-thirds of American Christians believe that you can go to heaven some other way. For example, when I was living in this uh, very beautiful little college town in North Carolina, Davidson, North Carolina, uh, for the year before I came on this trip, and one of my neighbors was the minister for the Episcopalian Church. How do they say it in Italian, Episcopalian? <laughs> 
Yeah. Anyway, he's a very nice guy, you know, intelligent, nice guy. We used to have conversations. We, you know, we'd run into each other. It's a small town. And uh, so one time we were talking and uh, I pinned him down. I said, well, you know, do you claim that Jesus is the only way and that what I'm doing is not a valid way? And he said, it's very interesting. He said that Jesus is my only way, but not necessarily for everyone. I thought that was a very intelligent, reasonable answer. And so what I mean to say is, because someone could say that, well, if, if people over time, I think what you'll find is that when people are left to their own, when people are free, when people are not brutalized, they're not threatened or, or, or coerced in other ways, when you just let people be free, what you find is that most people in history have concluded that there's some kind of God. Most people in history have come to that conclusion. Even in Europe, which is famous for its sort of like, uh, you know, post-World War I and post-World War II agnosticism, even Europe, not, no, not Italy, but, but, but Italy is always there, you know. But, but even in Northern Europe, things are changing actually a little bit. Not necessarily everyone's rushing back to the churches in North Europe, but uh, things are changing. If you, if you actually monitor European, North European cultural history. And so what we find is, what we find is that um, in terms of self-evident truths, just as it's self-evident that we exist, it's self-evident that we're in a real world for, mo for almost everybody, it's self-evident that we exist in a real world and, and uh, we're not just lost in our own minds, there actually is a world out there. And for most people, it is a self-evident truth that some kind of divine power ultimately explains why the world exists, why we exist, and how it exists. And ultimately, for example, in America, in America, the, the percentage of people who believe that evolution theory by itself, without any mention of a god or anything, just evolution scientific, you know, scientific evolution by itself explains the world. The number of people who believe that in America is, uh, it's about 12%. 12%. That means almost everyone in America, 88%, that's an extremely heavy majority. 88% of the people in America believe that in order to explain the way the world is, you have to, there's something more than just the physical. So why do 88%, that, that's really almost everybody. You know, why do so many people believe that? Because they somehow feel they know it within. And so if you look at, in other words, we have to talk about real contenders, just like in that famous movie scene, Marlon Brando, you know, on the waterfront, I could have been a contender. Anyway, you have to know Hollywood to appreciate that. So, in the real world, among real people, not every foolish claim, not every dogma deserves to be taken seriously. For this simple reason, you could, you could give a type of metaphysical psychological argument. You could say, if it's the case, if something really is true, like there's a God, if there really is a God, and 
Um, if we exist in such a way that we can know that, and if God exists in such a way that he wants us to know it, if all those things are true, God exists, God is knowable, God wants to be known, and if we want to know God, if all those things are true, then it would follow logically that we can know God. And that turns out to be the case. It turns out to be the case that most people in the world believe that they do know that there's some type of divine reality beyond the physical. Most people in the world, now you can say that doesn't prove anything, but you should be careful before you say that. Because if you say the fact that most people in the world believe they know in some way and to some extent that there's something metaphysical, which is real, some type of metaphysical being, if you say that does not show anything, then in fact you are accepting a radical extremist theory of uh, basically of, of human delusion. Human beings would have to be so radically deluded that practically anything that human beings in general said could very likely not be true, even the belief that the world exists. So you cannot simply walk away from or dismiss the fact that billions and billions and billions of people believe they know something. Because if you dismiss that, then human knowledge itself becomes radically challenged and you can't really claim that we know anything. But then if you say we don't know anything, you claim to know that we don't know anything. In other words, you end up just babbling, blah, 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 like that. Because if you say we don't know anything, then you don't know that we don't know anything. It just leads to nonsense. In other words, if you say that the fact that such huge numbers of people believe they know there's some kind of God, or if you say that doesn't mean anything, then basically you are sabotaging the very possibility of human knowledge and engaging a type of radical skepticism which will lead to absurd conclusions and therefore is not true. So if we talk about the difference between dogma, if we talk about the difference between dogma and uh, self-evident claims, uh, they have different requirements. That's really the difference. So Parangshreya, we're getting there, just hang in there. In this sense, that a self-evident truth, which is not self-evident to most people, there would have to be some explanation. If something is self-evidently true, why is it that most people don't find it self-evidently true? And then you'd have to have some, there's have to be some, another self-evident truth that only a tiny number of people are given this self-evident truth, but why? I mean, then, then the truth that you claim to know, the God, would have to be a, a, a very eccentric being who chooses not to give knowledge himself to most people. And then if you say most people don't know that Krishna is God, uh, I, I think the answer would be that wherever in the world people were given a free choice, they tended to believe in Krishna. For example, I explained this in, in my course on the history of Indian religion. If you look at the history of India, it was this incredibly competitive marketplace of ideas with Buddhism, Jainism, even Christianity, you know, Vaishnavism, Shaiva doctrine and, and, and the goddess. And there was everything. It was, it was like a three ring metaphysical circus. And so in that situation, 
the big winner was Krishna. In a free and open, non-coercive society, over hundreds of years, the big winner was Krishna. And therefore, the most important book is Bhagavad Gita. The most important narrative is Mahabharata, and so on, and Bhagavatam. Even in Southeast Asia, at a certain point, uh, Islam uh, coercively spread into Southeast Asia. I don't mean to say every last person there was violently or you know forced to convert, but basically it, it coercively spread. So before Islam coercively spread into certain parts of Asia, uh, Krishna consciousness was very popular, or Krishna, not everywhere, but in many places. So in other words, wherever people, what we find historically is that when people are given a free opportunity uh, to choose, that large numbers of people choose Krishna. That's why in Jakarta, for example, the capital of Indonesia, in the middle of the capital, in, in the, you know, the plaza, there's a statue of Krishna and Arjuna on the chariot. And that's why the airline of Indonesia is called Garuda Airlines. That's why, you know, Siam, the ancient name of Thailand, that's why the, the kings of Thailand were called Ramas. Just like the kings of Europe were called Caesars, which in Russian is Tsar and in German is uh, Kaiser. So, so similarly, in many parts of Asia, the kings were called Ramas. And so what we find is that, in fact, when people do get a free choice, many people like Krishna. So now that brings us back to the Hare Krishna movement today and uh, the need to actually present Krishna consciousness in a way that does not strike people as extremely exotic or eccentric. So. Anyway, I'd like to thank everybody. Uh, is any other question? You can see in the chat. What's that? See in the chat. There was one more question. Oh, the oh the Skype, the Skype chat. Okay, let me take a look. Uh, actually, I don't. Okay. It's not. It's not in I my Skype. It. I can read it? Yeah, go ahead, please. Okay, could you say something about fanaticism, racial Islam or fundamental Christianity that drives a lot of people away from theism, these people claim to be following God? Well, uh, if we discover, as in fact we, do, we have discovered, that most people in the world, or let's say most people in America, or parts, you know, or parts of Europe, eat junk food, bad food or trashy food, the, the alternative is not starvation. The alternative is good food. So if there's bad religion or fanatical or violent religion, the alternative is good religion. Because people will be religious. Nothing proves this more than the fact that materialistic atheistic science basically transformed itself into a religion. With, with, with unchallengeable dogmatic beliefs, with excommunication of non-believers, with high priests. I mean, from the point of view of sociologists, this is not me talking. If, you know, sociologists have studied the social structures of the scientific establishment and found that in every sense, it's a religion. And so the fact is, the fact is that human beings will be religious. Human beings will 
elevate certain beliefs or certain ideas to a sacred status that cannot be challenged. They will have hierarchies. They will have forms of excommunicating people who uh, blaspheme the sacred beliefs. People will be religious. And therefore, the only, the only question is not, will human beings religious because, be religious because they will be. And Krishna says that, by the way, in Bhagavad Gita, in chapter 17 of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, uh, that every living being believes in something, believes in something, has faith in something. Every human being will attach himself or herself to some type of metaphysical belief. Even if you believe in justice, justice is metaphysical, it's not physical. There's no physical object, which is justice. So if you believe in justice, you believe in something beyond the empirical world. If you believe in equality, equality is a religious belief. If you believe in democracy because you also believe people are equal, if you think that people are all equal, that is a religious belief. That's not, that's not a scientific belief. Science teaches us the opposite. All people are unequal. Obviously, I can run faster than anyone in this room. It's a joke. So the idea is that if you test us, if you test us artistically, intellectually, you know, mathematically, emotionally, physically, politically, financially, if you test people, they're all different. And yet against all empirical science, against all empirical science, human beings today have decided to establish political systems based on a belief which is empirical nonsense. Namely that everyone's equal. I'm not saying it's nonsense, it's just empirical nonsense. And so what you find is that human beings are religious. So you have two options, good religion, bad religion, no religion, not an option because it goes against human nature and nature wins. In fact, what we find is, take the 20th century, you have these crazy ideologies like, like uh, you know, the, the, the Soviet, you know, Lenin, Stalin with his so-called Marxism or Mao, people had killed, you know, or Hitler. I mean, I mean, the number of people killed is, is it's practically inconceivable. I mean, our human brains are not, our human brains are not made in such a way that we can really even process that information. I mean, so many people were killed because of an attempt to subordinate nature to ideology. The idea is that ideology, anyway, it was, I won't go into the whole intellectual history of Europe and how they came up with that. Just a very short version was that up until, let's say, the scientific revolution, the age of enlightenment, the idea was that, uh, you know, God is, wherever you're born, that's, if you're born a peasant, you're a peasant. If you're born a king, you're a king. And so, uh, you know, people are born in a certain way and you can't change it. Therefore, no social mobility. Wherever you're born, that's where you stay. So you had the, you had the French Revolution, you had all kinds of intellectual revolutions with the idea that no, you know, there's no limits. Anyone can be anything. Anyone can be anything. So they went to the other extreme. Therefore, if we have an ideology like Marxism or, or, or you know, Marxist, Leninist, blah, 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 or, or fascism, that we actually have the power just to engineer humanity. 
that we have the power to, and that's why Hitler, by the way, was a huge fan of Darwin. Not always mentioned, but we always hear about the trial of Galileo. We don't always hear that Hitler was a great Darwin fan. In many ways, it, it was this, this naive idea that you can just make people whatever you want them to be. And of course, the result was horrible. It was just a complete holocaust. Tens and millions of people, the most bloody, murderous century in human history as a result of this idea that ideology can control nature. So the idea is that we are by nature religious and you can't mess with that. We are by nature, human beings by nature believe in higher principles. So if you don't have good religion, you'll have bad religion. No religion, not an option as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita. So, anyway, I'd like to thank everyone very much, and I think our time is up. So, uh, Ramanandaji, are you there? Yes. Can you want to take one more question or no? Okay, last question. We're in overtime. Okay. This is you, OT. This will definitely be the last. Okay. Janan Nivasa from Fairbanks, California, Pranans Maharaj. Oh, Falbrook. Oh, Jenna Nivasa. He just right. wrote to me. Aribo, Jenna Nivasa. Yeah, from Fallbrook. Uh, can one obtain Krishna, realization without having to undergo miseries and sufferings? Are there examples on the scriptures of devotees who obtained that stage and had a happy life? It seems that there are plenty of devotees who underwent. And then it cuts off. Yeah. Oh, underwent misery for the service of the Lord. Uh, when I look at Prabhupada's life, I don't see him really suffering in the way a human being suffers. And obviously, he had medical challenges, he had disappointments at home and disappointments in the preaching mission. I mean, he certainly underwent a lot of challenges. But I mean, the more Krishna conscious we are, the more we... Um, we remain uh, in transcendental consciousness. So I, I don't think it'd be fair to say, I don't see that Prabhupada suffered the way a, nor a human being would suffer. So really how much we suffer, I mean, to say that something went wrong in your life is not to say that you suffered. You may take it as a blessing. Just like Narada Muni, his, his mother died and he loved his mother, but when his mother died, he just saw this is Krishna's arrangement and he went off and became the great devotee that he is. And so to, there's a difference between things going wrong and actually suffering. And so the more we are Krishna conscious, the less we suffer, and the less we're Krishna conscious, the more we suffer. It's just, um, that's just the way it is, and that's the way it should be. It's like when you're driving on the highway and you're going out of your lane, your car starts vibrating. That There's a reason, that's to wake you up and to put you back in your lane. So anxiety, it's just a little, you know, it's just a little device Krishna put if you're going out of your lane. If you're if you're if you're going off the road, Krishna makes your, you know, makes your mind bounce a little bit so you'll get back on the road. Okay? Thank you, Maharaj. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. I'd like to, unfortunately, I can't see or, in a sense, uh, personally thank everyone that called in, but I'd like to thank everybody, and it was a pleasure.
having this opportunity to uh, discuss Krishna consciousness with you. So thank you all. Hare Krishna.